This is Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, where we discuss developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy. I'm Jake Seward, Global Head of Corporate Communications here at the firm. In today's episode, we're exploring the question, what is alternative risk premia, and why exactly are investors excited about it? To answer that, we're joined by Heather Schrimmel and Tom Leake. Heather is head of Systematic Trading Strategies Distribution in the Americas and head of the Strategic Cross-Asset Solutions Team. Tom is global head of the Systematic Trading Strategies Sales Strat Team and is based in London. Heather and Tom, welcome to the program. Thank you. So, Heather, let's start by defining what we mean exactly by alternative risk premia or ARP. What's the difference between ARP and smart beta, which is another term we hear thrown around a lot? Thanks, Jake. It's great to be here. It's a real pleasure uh, to be talking about alternative risk premia. So with regards to the definitions, I think actually it makes sense to start with smart beta. And in actual fact, what I'd say is smart beta is the perfect name because simply it's about getting smarter or better exposure to the betas that you want in your portfolio. More specifically, smart beta are long-only strategies that are designed to outperform a traditional beta in your portfolio. So as an example, the S&P 500. By tilting, going overweight or underweight, that benchmarks constituents. So with our S&P 500 example, going over or underweight, the stocks in the S&P 500, by some characteristic or factor, such as carry value or momentum. Alternative risk premia, or ARP, on the other hand, are long-short strategies that are designed to generate positive returns in exchange for an investor taking risks. ARP strategies are steeped in academia. There is an abundance of research on them going back to the 1950s. And so these strategies are seeking to provide persistent exposure to these factors or risk premia, such as carry value or momentum. So if we think of an example in the FX world, you could have the carry risk premia. Simply put, you're going long those currencies with high interest rates and short those currencies with low interest rates. Another example is in the equity market, and there we could look at momentum risk premia. And that's simply going long past best performing stocks and short past worst performing stocks. In other words, buying the winners, selling the losers. What's interesting is that ARP can be systematically harvested across all of the asset classes, FX, equities, rates, credit, and commodities. And what's key is that I use the word systematically because alternative risk premium strategies are rules-based. There's no active management, no bells and whistles. And in addition to that, they're fully transparent, they offer daily liquidity, and they're relatively low cost. So Tom, briefly describe how the industry's evolved. Heather mentioned that it has its roots in academia. What's happened since the 50s when this was really an academic field and not really practical? So pretty slowly. It took a long time to move from academic to practitioner circles. And we really had a lot of basic stuff to understand. The first key building block, which happened in the 60s, was to understand that there was the market return, what we call beta, and then differences to the market return, alpha. Prior to that, we hadn't really separated different sources of return, what was coming from the broad market move, what was coming from your difference in your investment portfolio, 
to that. That was done by a paper by Sharp in the 60s. He won the Nobel Prize for it. Following that, there was a sequence of other academics, perhaps the most famous being a paper by Famer and French who defined value, size, and a couple of other factors, who worked to define these factors or premia. They worked to find things that explained the cross-section of return, the things that explained differences in returns between different assets, and learned that some of these things had expected positive returns. They seemed to do really well over the long run. Now, that took us up to about the late 90s, and it wasn't really until then that the hedge fund industry, the first people to cotton onto it, started to think about it and started to build portfolios using this stuff. But it wasn't that many hedge funds. It was quite a small group, and they did very, very well applying this type of thinking. Now, that takes us up to the global financial crisis, and it wasn't until post-financial crisis that um, big institutional investors started to see how they could apply this thinking to build new broad portfolios. The banks started to get involved in around 2012 when the big institutions were asking, can you help us build these portfolios? That's really where we started to get involved in the current form. Why, after such a long period in the academic community and then in the hedge fund space and active management space, why did it take till really 2012, the last six, seven years, for this to get more practical? Really, it's a technology problem. You've got to look at a lot of data for a lot of different assets across a lot of different asset classes. And then you've got to apply that technology in a systematic way at relatively high frequency. We're not talking intraday, but you've got to be doing stuff periodically daily, weekly, and so on. And basically, the infrastructure got good enough to allow us to do it. The data became widely available. There were databases that you could access electronically. And the bank systems got to the point where they could start applying this in this way. So it's really part of the tech revolution that we've had in the last 20 years. And it's really one aspect of the tech revolution being applied to finance. The technology allowed us to do it. What are the benefits of ARP, particularly for these big institutional investors? What are they looking to get out of this way of investing? There are absolute multitude of benefits for the institutional investor in this space. But I think the number one benefit, number one reason for investing in alternative risk premia is for portfolio diversification. And especially when you think of the current environment of historically low interest rates and high equity valuations, investors have started to begin rethinking their asset allocation approach and looking for better diversification and other high sources of return that they can achieve. If you think back to how I described alternative risk premia, they're strategies that are designed to exhibit positive sources of return but they also exhibit low correlation to traditional assets. So when you add them to your portfolio, not only are you able to achieve lower overall portfolio volatility, but at the same time, you can get higher overall portfolio returns. That's the overriding reason, but there's a whole host of other reasons. Portfolio completion, hedge fund replication, a form of liquid alts, an outperformance tool, beta replacement. But one thing that I think is worth mentioning in a little bit more detail is that as the ARP market evolves, what we've really seen is that one of the greater benefits is our ability to customize ARP strategies. And it's with that customization that we're able to work with clients and provide solutions 
to their problems. So they might have a particular diversification need or some risk target, vol or correlation or drawdown. And we're able to design the ARP strategy to absolutely meet their needs. And I think that that's really exciting and a huge benefit for clients. You couple that all with the fact that you have the daily liquidity, you have full transparency, you have a relatively low cost, and I'd say no surprise why so many are looking at ARP. So a lot of times when products were marketed as having low correlation to other asset classes, it turned out not to be true, and we learned that in the global financial crisis. So are they really getting the benefits of the low correlation and real diversification? So it's a good question. I guess it'd be easy if I could just answer it as yes. <laughs> but I think there's two things that you have to think about when it comes to the diversification. The first is that ARP strategies are broadly uncorrelated to each other over the long term. So that if you add a basket of ARP strategies to your portfolio, you're going to achieve more portfolio diversification than if you just add a few select alternative risk premium strategies. And then the second thing to keep in mind is that ARP strategies, especially a basket of strategies, actually exhibit low correlation to traditional assets. But I think what you maybe are getting at is 2018. It was a pretty bad year for risk premium across the industry. So you can imagine at Goldman Sachs, we did a lot of analysis and we looked at short-term correlations over the year as measured by five-day returns. And you know what? They actually held true to their historical results. And so we looked at longer-term correlations as measured by six-month returns. And in actual fact, we found that correlations went up. And so that implies that the diversification went down. But I have to tell you, Jake, that in actual fact, 2018 was a really bad year for risk premia. So what we saw is a lot more risk premia strategies underperform and a lot fewer outperform over different periods of the year. And over the whole year, we had very little diversification benefits. But I think what I'd say is the bad luck is that if you look at all asset classes, they all performed badly. I mean, really, virtually, except for cash, it was very difficult to find a positive performing asset in 2018. So I think what investors need to keep top of mind is that adding a low or uncorrelated ARP to their portfolio provides valuable portfolio diversification. But what they can't lose sight of is that low correlation does not equal negative correlation. <laughs> Therefore, by definition, there are going to be times when equities go down, and so does risk premium. So, Tom, let's talk just a little bit more about what happened in 2018. Heather mentioned that the industry had a bad year overall, but there was a lot of double-digit declines in this space. What drove that? And a lot of people talk about the crowding dynamic. Explain what that is and what you found in the research about what happened late last year. It's really uh, been a big question, and a lot of people have been asking what was the underlying factor that explained what happened in 2018? What's the narrative that connects all these things? Before we go into it, just a quick detour into behavioral finance. We, as humans, have this desperate need for stories. We really want to have some story that makes everything come together and make sense. And in fact, we chase that need, sometimes even when the statistics don't actually support it. 
And so we should just sort of give ourselves the warning that we're about to construct a story about what happened, which will probably make us feel better. But part of it is just us constructing a story. It isn't necessarily really statistically rigorous, and we need to make sure that we test our stories statistically. So saying that, the industry loves stories, and there were three main stories. <laughs> they are illiquidity, crowding, and risk repricing. So dealing with them each in turn, and I'll come to your crowding question specifically, Jake, but illiquidity is basically the idea that markets have become less liquid. So top-of-order book depth, the amount of liquidity available for people trading on exchange is reduced. The amount of capital that broker-dealers are providing on market making has gone down. More of the flow is driven by intraday traders and so on. So there's less liquidity. And that's a story that's got a lot of press. And there's actually some reasonable evidence to support that, particularly on an intraday basis. What we did in a risk premium context is we took our universe of assets that we invest in. So 150, 180 odd assets. We didn't do single stocks, but we did everything else. And we actually looked at the size of moves we had seen over 2018 versus the size of moves that you see in a normal year. And we were sort of expecting to find that 2018 had lots of big moves. Because when we lived through the year, it certainly felt like a year with a lot of idiosyncratic events. But actually, what the statistics showed is it wasn't that bad. It really wasn't a big move year. It had more than 2017, but less than 15 and 16 and miles less than 2008. And that sort of rules out this theory that markets are moving a lot more than they used to, because it's a great story, but the data doesn't really provide answer it. What we did notice was what Heather mentioned, was that actually the key thing that was different in 2018 was the very big shortage of strategies that performed really well. So the number that's actually performed really badly was about normal. You didn't have loads doing really badly, but you had very, very few doing really well. And that's an interesting effect, and it hasn't actually happened so many times in history. Normally, you have a pretty good distribution across different outcomes. And what you saw is the big drawdown that happened in Q4 led to you being able to examine Premier at the end of 2018. And one of the things we measure is we look at what we call the valuation spreads or the carry spreads. So let's take a carry strategy. We'll just keep with the FX example to keep it simple. Is you can look at how big is the interest rate differential between the things you're long and the things you're short. And this number fluctuates from time to time. And what we saw is if we measured that across our portfolio strategies across asset classes, towards the end of 2018, both the carry spreads and the valuation spreads got really, really wide. So one of the things that teaches us is why strategies were performing less well is that they were getting cheaper and cheaper, essentially. The embedded value in them was getting bigger and bigger. And that sort of suggests that there was this big risk repricing. People demanded a higher return to hold a set of assets. And that's sort of reasonable as a theory because it also connects with traditional asset classes. And it's perhaps not a surprise that that might happen as interest rates start coming off their floor. So I think the theory that we most like is the risk repricing theory, where people demanded a higher expected return for holding risk. That translated into them needing wider valuation or carry spreads to buy assets. And that's really what drove the returns. Crucially, that's the opposite to crowding. If something is crowded, you expect its value and carry spreads to be really tight. Pressed, right? People yeah. are buying it, yeah. so it's actually squeezing in. And it's a really good counter argument to crowding because it tells you that there isn't a lot of money flowing in 
the money which would flow in would cause things to converge. And so you'd see this stuff come down. You just don't really see that. And then interestingly, in the first quarter of this year, we actually had a nice rebound. Assets came back and some of those wide carrying value spreads closed. So they moved from like 95th percentile to 70th percentile, that type of number. So things are still a little bit cheap, but just not quite as cheap as they were at the end of 2018. Okay, so Heather, you mentioned institutional investors. That's a very broad category. Who's investing in ARP and is it a special subset of that investing group? Originally, it actually was a special subset. The first movers were the Nordic pension funds. And in actual fact, there's a pretty interesting story, as Tom says, we all like stories as to why that was true. So if you look back to 2008, the Norges Bank was managing the Norwegian government pension funds, approximately 800 billion portfolio. They had a whole slew of external managers, and they thought they were pretty diversified. But guess what? In the crisis, everything went down together. So the Norwegian government pension fund commissioned a study, and they hired three pretty renowned professors from Columbia, Yale, and the London Business School to do a study on the active management portion of their portfolio. And the result of that study was that 99% of the performance could be represented by these risk premium factors that we're talking about that have been well written about in academia. So the Nordic pensions read this report and they turned to the banks, including Goldman Sachs, and they said, hey, can you replicate these risk premium strategies for us in a systematic, liquid, low cost and transparent way? And that was literally the genesis of the risk premium market. So soon thereafter, the sophisticated, large Canadian and Aussie pension funds and sovereign wealth funds began investing in alternative risk premia. And then eventually it spread to the U.S., to Europe, to Asia, across all the regions. And in all of those regions, the first movers were your end investors, the pensions, endowments, sovereign wealth, etc., but one of the things that we've seen here in the U.S., which is a little bit different, is the big growth that we've seen in investors has been from the asset manager community. And in actual fact, that probably shouldn't be a surprise because so many of the end investors here in the U.S. require a fiduciary to do their investing. And the only other thing I'd say is that the market really is changing and becoming a lot bigger and a lot more accepted by a lot more type of investors. If you go back just two to three years and I'd be out on a marketing trip and say we saw 10 investors, we'd be lucky if five of them knew what alternative risk premia is. Today, there's hardly a client that doesn't know what alternative risk premia is. Now, unfortunately, that doesn't mean they're all investing <laughs> in alternative risk yeah. premia, but all types of clients are now investing, not just the pensions, asset managers, OCIOs, fund of funds, hedge funds, insurance companies. So virtually, I'd say all types of investors. Awesome. Interesting. So Tom, what are, you've mentioned factors. What are some of the individual factors in ARP strategies? Often we can make this all very esoteric and not specific, but we can make it super specific and it's very, very simple. So let's just do the three main ones. So value, carry, and momentum. Value is basically buying cheap things, selling expensive. And you expect to make money if prices converge. 
Really that simple. Carry investing is buying high yield assets, selling low yield assets. And you tend to do well when the market is calm. If the market is calm, you'll earn that carry premium. And then momentum investing is buying assets that are performing well, selling assets that are performing badly. As long as trends continue, you'll do well. So value does well at turning points, simply put. Carry does well if things stays the same. And momentum does well if trends continue. Is there anything really new there, or is this just the logical implications of this research that we talked about and that's been going on for decades? So I think the core idea is very old, not new. How you implement them and the details of your design choices really do matter. In any one year, the difference between design choices can actually make a very big difference to whether you make money or lose money. So I think the concept is to take very simple, easy to understand ideas that have been around for a long time and have stood the test of time, we could say, and then really focus on how to implement them in a clean, low-cost, efficient way. Now, separate to that, there is always this new search for more factors. And there's been a whole world of new papers trying to find new or variations of factors. And you have to actually be selective once you get outside the main academic ones about which ones you actually want to include in your portfolio. So there's the core academic ones, and then there's a whole set of things which exist because of particular supply-demand imbalances in particular markets. And they're actually quite interesting because they can be very diversifying to the other factors. They can be a little bit more technical to access, and so some people do them, other people choose not to, but they can add a lot of value to the portfolio. Those are, I would call, more new and less academic. When you talk about these factors outperforming, they sound so simple. Why do they outperform? Is the market basically mispriced? Walk us through that. So the academics have spent a lot of time on this because I think it's a, like there's money to be made. Why is that? Let's talk about the best well-known premium, the equity risk premium. So why does equity markets go up? Equity markets go up because there's being liquidity provided to companies and those companies generate returns and GDP grows. For providing that liquidity and funding, people receive a return. So there's a core reason why equity markets generate return. And we would call that type of reason a risk-based reason. People are investing, they're taking risk, and they're earning a return. Other premia, such as volatility selling, the difference between implied and realized volatility or the premium you earn from selling options, again, that's a risk-based premium. You're selling an option, and you can earn a return from doing that. So risk-based premium is one of the main buckets of why these things exist. The second main reason the academics focus on are behavioral premiums, which are basically an explanation for why things work, because people behave like people rather than behaving like fully rational computers. And some of the academics argue that, for example, momentum comes about because of the speed of diffusion of information in markets and that different humans react at different speeds. It's a behavioral thing. And so there's an argument that momentum is driven by behavioral biases. And then finally, there are structural premia, which exist because the market has a structural effect. So one of the examples is, for example, the low beta premia, where you invest in um, low risk assets and you sell high risk assets. That exists because there's leverage aversion. If people have a shortage of cash, they're more likely to buy the higher risk asset. So those things on average risk adjusted should return worse. There's more flow into them. So you can make a return to take advantage of that structural effect by buying the low risk, selling the high risk. So risk-based, behavioral, structural. You talked about the devil being in the details and design of these portfolios being very, very important. 
How is it done? You've called it a solutions-based approach. Explain what that means. So I think you've got two layers. First, you have to design your premium. So how do you actually capture that equity value, that rate of momentum, or so on? And then the second step is how you then apply that to a client's portfolio. And I think one of the most interesting areas is how, as we understand the premium dynamics better, picking up on something Heather mentioned, the customization we're able to provide. So a client has a particular investment problem. So they're focused on, my portfolio might do badly in this scenario, or I need something that's going to return well when this happens. And what's nice is you can... Or, or the Norwegian case, explained. I thought I had diversification, <laughs> it didn't. turned out I didn't, right? Yeah. And so by combining the different premia together, you can actually build different types of portfolios. And as Heather said, if you take a broad portfolio, it will have low correlation, which doesn't mean negative. But if you pick certain premia, maybe you could build a negative correlation. Or maybe you could take a positive correlation if you want an equity replacement. So you select your premia, build a portfolio, and in doing that, you try and build a particular investment outcome which suits what the investor is looking for. So a lot of people think we're in the late stages of a cycle right now in markets, and there's been a lot of talk about how much longer it can last, and we don't know the answers, no one knows the answers, but how is that shaping how institutional investors think about this particular strategy? So it's one of the big factors driving interest. Essentially, investors have nowhere to hide. Equities are looking pretty expensive. Bonds are looking pretty expensive. There's reasons to believe that perhaps the nice diversification effects we've had between equities and bonds for the last 20 years might not persist. Perhaps they could go down together. And so investors are looking for sources of return, which might be diversifying to these scenarios. Now, alternative risk premium isn't a panacea. It's not going to solve all of the problems, but it's one of the areas you can look to find an asset that will do well in different environments, and perhaps you can build a portfolio that will do well in that type of environment. And that's one of the reasons lots of investors are focused on the space. Okay, so Heather, we talked earlier about the benefits, obviously, about investing in the space. There are obviously some practical challenges when it comes to actually implementing one of these portfolios. What are the questions that come up with clients when you're talking to them about this? You now say everyone's heard about it, but there's still some doubters. You know, it's a really good question, and it just leads back to the fact that there are so many benefits for investing and the fact that it's steeped in academia and it's low cost and it's transparent. So in actual fact, when we talk with clients, the investment decision meaning the decision, what premium am I going to put into the portfolio and how am I going to construct that portfolio is actually pretty straightforward. Where the challenge comes is on the governance side. And that's where we get the most questions. And we can have a client who's made the investment decision. And so the types of questions that we're being asked are, so how does ARP fit within my organization? What is the best way to benchmark it? How am I going to get my internal stakeholders to buy into it? How do I measure good outcomes? How do I measure bad outcomes? Or like just more basically, how do I measure success? None of these are simple questions. None of them are easy to answer. What I could say is that for those investors who have successfully got ARP into their portfolio allocations, there's a couple of commonalities that we've seen across those investors. The first is that when you're making your initial ARP portfolio, try and make it a standalone portfolio because then it's easier to measure and it's also easier for internal communication about what you're actually doing. 
The second thing is to think about the trade-off between diversification and complexity. The more ARP strategies you put into your portfolio, the more diversification you're going to get. But at some point, you just might make it too complex. So you've got to think about that trade-off. And then the third thing is to try and build a governance structure around an investment that can be measured over a reasonable period of time. So one thing that we like to say is that everyone is a long-term investor until they actually invest. And finally, I think it's really important to be focused on post-trade operational processes, just as focused on that as on the investment. So when you pick your counterparts, make sure that they understand both the pre- and the post-trade risk controls. All those things, I think, can make it easier to get ARP into the portfolio. So what's next for the industry? We've seen, obviously, a lot of growth in recent years. Tom, you mentioned that big data has been a big part of this. How will AI and some of the emerging trends around machine learning change these strategies? So it's still not clear. I think it's still early days, and the industry is still working out exactly how to include these techniques into risk premium. Clearly, there's a lot of ways of using these techniques in quant investing in general, and a lot of hedge funds are spending time trying to apply this type of thinking. But in terms of risk premium, which is all about simple, traditional, transparent capture, it's a little bit less clear. There's been a couple of interesting academic papers, particularly on the machine learning side rather than on big data, where they've found that you can use some machine learning techniques to combine premium in a more efficient way. Particularly if you're trying to use a multi-factor approach, which is when you're building a portfolio, looking at a number of premia, combining that information, and then building one portfolio, there's some evidence that machine learning could be helpful in that setting. In terms of big data, that sort of is a hint that there's other factors out there. There are other things that can be explained in data that we haven't seen so far that will allow us again to go back to the original academic process and find new sources of return or new ways of explaining behavior. The challenge we have with that is we run a couple of interesting projects. It's quite hard to build that with very large capacity. The data tends to be more nuanced or detail-orientated, and it's actually quite difficult to find a big capacity, big new data source. But I think it's a very early days, and there's lots of interesting work going on. So what are you both most excited about with how ARP can be used as a toolkit for investors? What I'm most excited about is how we've adapted our ARP platform to be first and foremost all about customization. So now no longer are we going to a client with a set ARP pitch book saying, this is ARP. <laughs> Instead, we're having you know two-way conversations with our clients. We're figuring out what are their problems, what are their issues, and then we're tailoring ARP strategies to meet their needs. As a salesperson, this is absolutely powerful, and it's the best thing for our clients. I guess I just really love looking at this stuff every day. It's in the most amazing space. We learn each month, each quarter. We find some new point of detail which will allow us to make the strategy better. And so we get to keep making our strategies better, keep refining and improving them. And it's a great privilege to get to work in that academic-type enterprise within a commercial environment. It's a great environment to work in. So how did you get interested in this part of the industry to begin with? I started in Smart Beta before Risk Premium came a thing. I was lucky in 
2004 to work in one of the very first smart beta startups. There was like three or four really small funds trying to set up different smart beta products. And that taught me a lot about the space and taught me how to think about it. Sadly, it didn't actually work out. Then uh, <laughs> I moved into banking and I kept the passion for that type of approach and that type of project. And I used sort of risk premium type thinking in a few places. And then I was very lucky to be part of a team that was actually contacted by one of those Nordic pension funds in 2012. And that really allowed me to take the thinking that I had learned from the early days in Smart Beta, but also we had a great team put together to solve those problems and it came from that project. And Heather, how about you? I started here at Goldman 22 years ago in the commodity business, and I helped develop and build our commodity investor business. The GSCI, the Goldman Sachs Commodity Index, was what we were marketing. Now, back in 97 when I joined, I don't think there were any clients that actually had a set allocation to commodities. There was no need to have commodities in their portfolio. But the reason we were successful building the business was because we were marketing portfolio diversification. So now fast forward to about uh, 2015, I've been out of the commodity business since 2009, and I've been in charge of the pension business. And I'm looking around Goldman and seeing what products we can be offering our clients. And I'm looking at this amazing, pretty amazing ARP platform that we're developing. And we've got really smart strats working on it. And they're coming out with these really smart, innovative products. But there was no marketing or distribution game plan. So what I did is I put a business plan together based on my GSCI experience, and what I found were some remarkable similarities. Well, you know what? No one has an asset allocation naturally to alternative risk premia. No one needs to buy it. And the best marketing pitch is actually portfolio diversification. So I pitched this head so you're of back to where you started. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So you know, I pitched it this head of distribution to senior leaders and here I am. Uh-huh. And having, you know what, just as much fun marketing ARP as I used to in the commodity space. So to finish off this episode, in one minute or less, let's answer the central question of the episode. What is alternative risk premia and why are investors excited about it? Ultimately the goal of all investors is to generate higher returns over the long run. And the key to doing that is portfolio diversification. Traditionally, they got portfolio diversification by diversifying their traditional assets. Today, they have the ability to diversify via risk premia strategies, ARP. ARP is steeped in academia. There are more risk factors than there are asset classes. There is a lack of correlation amongst the various alternative risk premium strategies. And together, they are a powerful diversifier. Add them to your portfolio, increase returns, lower volatility. Awesome. Tom, you want to take a stab or is that (laughs) That enough? That was pretty good. Okay. (laughs) I I think the the one thing I would say is it's not a panacea. It doesn't make money every year. You'll have bad years and good years. But... It's a really powerful toolkit. What I like to say to investors is it's not perfect. It won't solve all your problems. I'm sorry, it's not that simple. But it's too powerful not to be part of your toolkit. Okay, well, Tom and Heather, thank you so much for joining us today. I learned a lot. Thank you very much, much, Jake. It was a lot of fun. Appreciate it. That concludes this episode of Exchanges at Goldman Sachs. Thanks for listening, and we hope you join us again next time.
This podcast was recorded on May 23rd, 2019. All price references and market forecasts correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the listener. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast, and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.